This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's always picking a fight on Twitter and usually with Keith Raboy. Anyway, we'll do that after this podcast. Okay, in my spare time, though, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Keith Raboy, an investor and entrepreneur who I've known a very long time and who was on a very early episode of this podcast many, many years ago. He was co-founder of PayPal and investment partner at Coastal Ventures. Keith, welcome back to Recode Decode. It's a pleasure to be here. I was not a co-founder of PayPal. Oh, I was okay. an early executive. Early I wish executive? I was a, I I was a co-founder. Mafia, though, right? Yeah, I definitely part of the mafia. Right, Peter, okay. Peter and Max are technically co-founders with right, Elon. Well, I think of the, all of you as like a big old uh, group. But although Elon came from an X.com. He did. There I, was a merger in March 2000, um, right before the internet bubble collapsed. Yeah, so remember, you know who wrote that for the Wall Street Journal, that story? Kara that must Swisher. have been you. Yep. Kara Swisher was. Yeah, indeed. So anyway, you went on to fame and fortune in many different areas. You now are an investment partner at Coastal Ventures. So that's what I want to talk about. Keith, one of the things I do like about you, we don't agree on a lot of things, but we def- <laughs> and we definitely argue over it on Twitter, but it's a very lively discussion, a very civil discussion for the most part, um, about various issues around Silicon Valley, around ethics issues, around co- a lot, all kinds of things. So I want to really have a lively discussion today about uh, things that are going on in Silicon Valley. But why don't we talk, like, let's get people familiar of, with your history. Go through it really quickly. Sure. So actually, I started as a litigator on Wall Street and moved out here in 2000 when uh, Peter Thiel became interim CEO of PayPal in uh, September 25th, 2000. And you knew him from Stanford. Right? I did. I met him my first, first uh, sort of fortuitously met him my first day of freshman year when he was delivering his alternative newspaper mm-hmm. to my dorm room. Um, and I happened to be there and was interested and started chatting with him. In any event, um, I met Peter, so like almost 30 years ago, when he resumed the reins at PayPal, he recruited me to move back out here. Uh, so I joined PayPal, which is a bunch of misfits losing a lot of money. Yep. We were burning $10 million a month actually at the time, which in 2000 was a lot of money. And um, we're running out of money very fast. But Peter um, sort of displaced Elon Musk as CEO. And in November 2000, I moved out here to join PayPal. And within a year, we were able to turn the company around, make the company actually profitable, file to go public, right? Actually, literally filed the day before 9-11 and still was able to have our IPO in February 2002. Mm -hmm. Subsequently sold the company to eBay after being a public company. And then rejoin Peter to help fund and start new companies in 2003 while the rest of Silicon Valley was dead and thought there was not going to be another wave of innovation. And particularly the consumer internet wave was done. Uh, We found some entrepreneurs that were still interested in starting things and were able to help propel them. I wound up joining LinkedIn 
about a year later, um, Reed Hoffman, who obviously had worked with us at PayPal, had been my f- first boss actually at PayPal, mm-hmm. uh, started LinkedIn. And um, from the very early days, I was interested. I invested in the company and then later joined full-time and stayed uh, through the Reed regime. Um, he eventually found a successor, a CEO, and I left to go join Max Levchin yep. um, at a company called Slide that, uh, you, Slide that most people don't remember. I do. People do remember Max, fortunately, but don't remember Slide, which eventually was acquired by Google. I would. I came in and mocked you all the time. Did that is true. That? You wrote a great set of uh, series <laughs> of uh, <laughs> um, kind of. It was a gaming company. It. Yeah, it was, it, was a, gaming. it was a social gaming company on a platform. It wasn't the worst idea. It was, no, it actually made it actually made some sense. Um, yeah. We used a lot of data to program our games. The problem was we lacked a top-down vision, and I think you need both. You need data and a vision. Right. And so we let users sort of vote with their feet, and we optimized around that. Um, we ultimately there was a bunch we, of companies like yeah, you. We were ultimately acquired by. Google, but it wasn't a very successful ride after about three and a half years. I stayed at Google for about two weeks and got persuaded to join this company called Square, which hadn't launched yet. Um, It was about 17 to 20 employees. Jack Dorsey had founded it and then funded it and was working on launching it. And I got recruited to join, decided to do that, went through a kind of a rocket ride, actually, Mm -hmm. very reminiscent of my PayPal days. And then eventually joined Vinod, who had been on my board, Vinod Kosla at Square, joined him as a managing director at Kosla Ventures in, believe this or not, March of 2013 to almost six years ago, which is an eternity. It's a long time, right. Yeah, it's an eternity. Yeah, I never thought you'd become a venture cap, because you were sort of an operator. Well, I was an operator, but I was always angel investing. Um, For about a decade before, from about 2003 to about 2013, I'd probably invested in about 80 companies. And actually enjoyed the process of meeting with very early stage entrepreneurs. We're talking about the proverbial two kids in a garage. Right. Found a lot of really interesting companies before other people knew they existed. Mm-hmm. Um, developed a bit of a track record and enjoyed that. And sort of always thought that one day I'd want to be a venture capitalist. And decided finally in 2013 to take the stress out of my life, which uh, when you're operating a company every day, there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeff Jordan taught me a long time ago this that one percent from Open Table. He's also a venture capitalist. Venture now, capitalist executive who's uh, championed actually the acquisition of PayPal back in the day. But Jeff had this rule of thumb when he was managing people that about 1% of your employees have a crisis every day. Yes. And that could be a personal crisis, a professional crisis, a medical crisis, a family crisis. But when you're the boss, all those crises are yours. Yeah. Everyone so, used to, someone used to call them big giant babies to me. Yeah. So after 13 years of suffering through a crisis every single day and kind of the sine wave mm-hmm. uh, of emotions, I decided uh, to be a venture capitalist, which at least smooths out those waves. It has a, you know less adrenaline and longer feedback cycles, but the day-to-day ebbs and flows are no longer your problem. And why did you pick Kosla? What was the there, there was a lot of there's a lot of different venture firms, and this is pre SoftBank and was Andreessen Horowitz had existed, right? They had, yeah, Andreessen I think was started around 2008 right. or nine. Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned, Vinod Kosla, who founded the firm, um, was on my board at Square, so I knew him quite well. Also, David Wyden, who's another general partner at KV today, had been on my board at Slide. Mm -hmm. So two of my three GPs, really, Mm -hmm. um, had been on my board for the last five or six years. And I think that's a very healthy way to start a venture relationship Mm -hmm. because you really need to have a lot of trust and confidence in each other. You don't see each other that much. We typically see each other only on Mondays. Right. Talk about Coastal is different because every venture firm is different. Some go for the whole, like, group think. Some think of other things. You guys are sort of 
independent players. We are independent in many ways. We take feedback from each other and really learn a lot from each other, which is the benefits of being in a partnership. We also, though, one other distinction that I really thought would be meaningful is we like to take technical risk. Mm -hmm. So we invest as early as possible. We try to be bold in our bets as early as possible and as impactful as possible. And I wanted to do more technically founded investments. What does that mean to you? It means that the core risk is the technology. Mm -hmm. Can this actually happen? Can this be done? So, you know, like, for example, a very popular topic would be, can you build an autonomous driving automobile? Mm -hmm. That's a technical risk. The, The market is there. If someone could deliver for a reasonable price point, an autonomous vehicle, there's definitely people who will buy that. Mm -hmm. But the question is, can you do it? How accurately can you do it? How many miles of data do you need? How many years is it going to take? What are the perverse side effects of deploying driverless cars? But 40,000, you know, Americans die every year in automotive accidents and about 60, 40 to 60% are completely preventable. It's Mm -hmm. because the driver's distracted with his or her phone, with drugs or alcohol, with talking to their passenger. But there's no doubt that if the technology exists, there's something to do with it. Where sometimes you're taking market risk, which is, it's very easy to see that the technology will work, but no one cares. No mm-hmm. one wants to buy it. Right. And so we take a lot of technology risk. And that was different for me, but I was excited to learn about that. And it allowed me to branch out into areas I hadn't been involved in, let's say healthcare investing, mm-hmm. which I was really interested in. The healthcare system's a complete mess in the U.S. and probably globally. There hasn't been a lot of innovation recently. Right. And I thought that I would want to spend you know, the next decade of my life diving into new areas like that. And as a result, actually, in the last six years, I've spent about 20, maybe 25% of my time and money investing in healthcare innovation, which is something I'd never been able to do before. Mm-hmm. So you were looking for just technical solutions versus market, but you do you do, do investments in, in both things. But Oh, I do. Like, I do both, but I felt... Different, what, what would you say your sell to investors yep, when sure. you do it? Well, the, the thing I actually have done, you know, for almost 20 years now is I invest primarily in founders. So I'm really a people-based investor. And so I'm basically assessing the opportunity that the people in front of me have of changing the world. If you think about how ridiculous Silicon Valley is in some ways on a rational basis, mm-hmm. it's completely ridiculous to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to change an entire industry that's been around for centuries. Right. But it happens all the time. Like mm-hmm. people succeed. But it is kind of irrational and right. kind of ridiculous right. to start that way. So my core expertise is once in a while being correct about meeting someone who's 19 years old or 25 years old or an immigrant that's never done anything, you know, has no traditional credentials and saying, you know what, this person actually may be able to do that. And I'm going to give them my time, my money and my credibility, lend them it and see if they can pull it off. And I've been right, you know, somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of the time, which is actually pretty good in investing. So when you're thinking about sort of this scene right now from when you started to today, talk a little bit about the landscape now, because a lot of things have happened. You had Andreessen Horowitz are sort of burst onto the scene, and Coastal had been around for a long time, but still, you had uh, been known as a huge uh, personality and also a huge reputation. Uh, but it was mostly business as usual until just recently with SoftBank's entrance with the vision, with the giant, massive uh, fund that they brought in. Well, I think SoftBank's had radical implications on the late stage the growth round, right. so to speak. What we do at Coastal is more early stage, mm-hmm. what I think of as traditional venture capital, which is a seed financing or a series A round. Right. Uh, where obviously SoftBank's been deploying a lot of capital in big bets, in 
mostly late stage investments, mm-hmm. and that has had significant impact in the entire ecosystem. So talk about that. Oh, because- uh, sure. Um, I think it's deferred some companies' um, aspirations of going public. Mm-hmm. I think it's created a crutch for other companies that really don't have an economic model that's working. Mm-hmm. And it's created like a bank account that people can tap into and not have to solve their business problems. Right. Scarcity, I, I personally believe that scarcity of capital is a good thing, that desperation breeds innovation, and that you need constraints to actually execute right. well and innovate. And if someone gives you sort of this pile of money, I think it creates a lot of excuses and soft thinking. To some extent, this is what happened to us at Slide. We raised one of the first monster growth rounds. What was it? It was, we, well, it, was led, it was basically Fidelity and T. Rowe. That's right. We raised, a 50, we, yeah, we raised a $50 million round in 2008. And that was kind of unprecedented, actually, for a private company from public stage investors. And I think it made us a little sloppy in several ways. And we thought we had sort of infinite resources and infinite time. Mm-hmm. And it didn't force us to solve our fundamental issues right Right away. So I think that that is likely to happen with a lot of companies that SoftBank invests in. I think they've invested in some very good companies that are clearly going to be successful. And they've invested in a lot of companies that probably have some fundamental sort of root cause problems and giving them a lot of money isn't probably going to solve them. Right. And so with, with the theory behind it, what do you think of this theory of just throwing like hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah, the theory behind... it does create, even if it doesn't affect you, it does create a mentality up and down the system. I agree with that uh, twofold. So I think the mentality of throwing money at companies and making them successful just doesn't work. I've never seen real examples of just you take money and you crown a winner. That's mm-hmm. their philosophy. And right. it's, I don't believe that works. Mm-hmm. I think that's the whole history of Silicon Valley is that these upstarts with very limited resources and a bunch of misfits have rearranged every single industry and they've done it over and over again. Every time someone thinks somebody in Silicon Valley is dominant, whether mm-hmm. it's Yahoo or before that AOL or whoever, right. they get upended by a new startup that's a bunch of you know dropouts that have very limited amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't believe that money is the panacea. It's not the panacea, and it's certainly not the keys to the kingdom. I think there are some companies, very selective few, where they have an engine that is polished and ready to rev, and you're just giving gasoline to an engine that works like really a Slack, well. For example, but but there's Slack. very few of those. Those right. are very rare, mm-hmm. and so I don't think if SoftBank makes 50 investments, maybe five at most are those kind of companies. Mm-hmm. The disciplined companies that really get product market fit without a lot of capital, are almost surely going to do better than the ones that chase hundreds of millions of dollars. So how do you refuse that in this? How do you compete in the system when you're in this system? I think sometimes it takes time. It's hard. I mean, a lot of my job is really explaining things to entrepreneurs. I don't have any power. All I have is, all I have is influence. Right. And so I try to explain the trade-offs. And sometimes it just takes a cycle for people to see other people get burned mm-hmm. by experience before things make sense to them, um, even if you can explain things rationally without the emotional context. So, for example, we grew up in Silicon Valley that went through 2000 to 2002. Right. So, to us, it's... And then 2008, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. But in 2008, it was a blip. It was right. a very short sort of... Right. But uh, 2002 was... Yeah, two, yeah. 2000 to 2003, it was, like a nu- it was called, you know, like a nuclear winter here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, almost everybody you met didn't have a job. They were out of work. And I think those who went through that searing experience, and you can see it on Twitter, things that like someone like Bill Gurley tweets, mm-hmm. um, it just frames um, your perspective in a way that you realize not everything's always up and to the right mm-hmm. and that you need to have control of the levers in your company and control of your destiny so when the world does change, you're not caught blindsided. But if you've never been through that kind of experience, I work with a lot of young entrepreneurs that are basically post-2008 and they've mm-hmm. been through 
10 Zero. years of right. uninterrupted growth. And this doesn't make any sense to them. When you talk about, well, the world can change and uh, capital is not always going to be free or very cheap. Like this week. Yeah. Like this week is going to shake, potentially shake things up. And I can mm-hmm. see a little bit of nervousness on some entrepreneurial friends of mine's faces this week, the ones that are in town, and they're asking questions for the first time. The kind of questions that three years ago, five years ago, they were, they were completely ignoring. Mm-hmm. And so I think the benefits of some experience are that you can see how the world shifts and that you can be prepared for it. But I think until SoftBank, the, the world of SoftBank goes through an evolution, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very hard to teach, in quotes, people the downsides of taking SoftBank capital, which right. are many. And we'll talk about other issues there in the next, oh, in the next sections around the, the, the Saudis and everything else. So to finish that second, what is the state of venture capital right now and to, as we're going into 2019? What would you, how would you describe it right now? Interestingly enough, I think in the last month or two, it's really cooled down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can see at the certainly Series B and later level, um, a fair amount of hesitation in pulling the trigger on monster investments. Uh, at the seed level, it's not as obvious how much impact uh, how much impact we've seen in the last six to eight weeks. It's also a little difficult because venture capitalists canonically go on vacation, you know, in December, and it was very busy because. Uh, a shockingly busy December, but I think that was the run on the bank sort of experience. Because, what do you mean? Uh, everybody, I think, felt a little bit unease. So every company that could and every founder that could and every VC that could mm-hmm. was raising money ahead of the curve before right. 2019 started. So typically December slows down mm-hmm. uh, for investors and for companies because we're, they're sort of derivative from the venture capital schedule. Mm-hmm. I felt like December was the busiest of my venture career by far. And I, I suspect- In terms of investment or raising? Raising. 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 And I think it was because people felt that the world could be changing and shifting. Mm-hmm. And they were all trying to fuel up with money right. as fast as possible right. so that they weren't caught last, you know, in the sort of last chair standing kind of problem. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens in January when everybody comes back to work and everybody's in the same place. But with the market turbulence is certainly going to exacerbate and amplify some of those feelings. So, but whether it's a real correction or a temporary blip, I don't think anybody absolutely knows. Mm-hmm. As you know, Peter Thiel likes to say, the only thing he really knows is we're 10 years closer to the end of this bubble <laughs> than, than we were, but uh, no one can predict the timing. So when you look out at 2019, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or are you just, just going to keep? I'm pessimistic at the later stage version of Silicon Valley. We'll talk about IPOs also. I think there's going to be a reassign. There's already been a 30% correction of public market prices for mm-hmm. technology stocks, mm-hmm. which is a reasonable amount already, but I suspect there's a little bit more there. But I'm very optimistic about the innovation in Silicon Valley. The, the fundamental building blocks of technology uh, are accelerating. Like the innovation at the root level is exciting. Every partner meeting on Monday, uh, we typically have companies present. And because we invest early, you see early. We, we see, we see, we see like the future and the future is great. I mean, on all kinds of dimensions, we see fascinating innovation every week. So I'm incredibly optimistic. And these companies are going to bake over the next three to five years. So what happens in January doesn't really doesn't matter. matter to them. Yeah. It's like having a baby in a sense. It takes a couple of years to grow up before you even know much about, you know, the child. True. I have children. Do you have children, Keith? Not yet. (laughs) It takes a long time. All right. When we get back, we're talking with Keith Raboy. He's an investment partner at Coastal Ventures, and he's actually one of the most interesting thinkers in Silicon Valley. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Keith Raboy. We've just been talking about innovation and where it's coming from. He was saying the, the future is bright. You see a lot of ideas. Can you give me a, like a five-minute idea of what that is? What do, what do you mean? What is what is coming that you find you find so intriguing? Sure. So a, a couple areas. In healthcare, the use of data to improve outcomes is really starting to happen, where math actually does a very good job correcting for the errors and mistakes humans make. Mm-hmm. And so we're starting to see the FDA actually approve uh, technologies and products that use math instead of humans. And that's encouraging a positive feedback loop where people are more willing to invest in companies that are going to displace human judgment and make either access more affordable or more immediate. So diagnostics, for example. Yeah, diagnostics are a good example. The Mm -hmm. treatment's a little bit more tricky. We don't do biotech per se, like, I mean, the actual drugs we wouldn't Mm -hmm. do. There is a nice trend of using software instead of pharma, um, which is interesting, where you can can produce the same outcome Mm -hmm. by uh, using, like, uh, an application Mm -hmm. to retrain your brain in different ways. Um, And the FDA has also blessed that. So actually, one of the benefits of the Trump administration, insofar as the RNA, I think most people would find that the FDA has been much more yeah, most, both I rigorous but also innovation-friendly. Yeah, that's what um, a lot of people are telling me. And, and it's leading to positive outcomes. I mean, these are real people that, you know, need uh, new treatments. And I think the FDA, the new FDA is very consciously aware that they have to ruthlessly enforce principles, For but they also should look for new ways of doing Most things. Most people feel the FDA was way behind Europe or in other, other yeah, you, which you, is you, unusual you, for being behind Europe. In yeah, no, ex- extremely unusual that the uh, U.S. agency is more heavy-handed and more intensively regulating than the equivalent in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was probably going on for a while, but it has been corrected in the Trump administration. So that's one of the best areas of the Trump administration, particularly vis-a-vis Silicon Valley. All right, so healthcare, what else? What other areas for innovation? You know, we've had some investments in satellites and in rocket companies. One um, that's already sort of pretty public is Rocket Lab, mm-hmm. which is producing very low-cost rockets that will put satellites into orbit uh, quickly and regularly. These low-hanging the- satellites, right? I've talked Jerry Yang is also in a bunch of those. Five yeah, this one's actually, we'll put it into orbit mm-hmm. um, for less than the cost of SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to actually be putting rockets into space as frequently as we expect airlines to take off. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about when planes were invented, the idea that planes would be flying every hour everywhere was probably pretty crazy. Right. 
there will be a point probably in your kid's lifetime where rockets are taking off just like we expect planes to take off. And that will change a lot of things. The cost of putting a satellite in orbit and the delay associated with putting a satellite in orbit handicaps and hampers innovation. Mm -hmm. And so when people realize that they'll be able to put a dedicated uh, launch into orbit for less than $5 million— and that they can bank on the predictability of putting that into orbit and replacing it, there's going to be a lot of innovation that can be done in space. So I think the space race, you know, is back. Mm -hmm. I I spent a little bit of time this year reading about uh, Apollo 8. Mm -hmm. There's a great new book called Rocket Man. Mm -hmm. Starting to get back familiar with how much innovation and the kinds of techniques people used and the kind of thinking people used because I think we're going to see a wave of that innovation. Including travel? Is that something you've been investing in? This is more deployment of different satellites. That's that's a lot of the the thing Deployment of yeah. satellites or satellites. Well, communications and data are incredibly important to everybody, mm-hmm. from military applications to civilian applications. Right. So it's not surprising so that girding the globe with satellites. Yeah, that is going to increase. Um, Transportation, we've looked at some transportation innovation. We haven't really invested in any. There's a a supersonic plane called Boom that a lot of people find very promising. Um, But I haven't seen— Supersonic plane. This is going uh, to travel from California to New York. We've talked about this at the defense agencies we're working on some of this. Yeah, and it's it's almost surely doable. The questions are really what's the cost going to be? What are the trade-offs in terms of— sound and noise disruption. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like the Concorde, you know, was built on technology really from the 1950s to 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's really rethought the Concorde since then. The Concorde since was a disaster, right? But it was fairly advanced for the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't perfect for the 80s, 90s, and let alone 2000s. And so it's, you know, really 40, 50-year-old technology, which is an eternity in the tech world. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to be some innovation there, but we haven't funded any yet. We Super have funded autonomous driving startups and the kind of sensors and core uh, technology components that would be very critical in deploying driverless or autonomous vehicles. Where do you think that timing is going out? I actually think it's sooner rather than later. One of the reasons why is humans are just not very good at this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so if your baseline, it depends a little bit, and we'll talk about this vis-a-vis other policy Mm -hmm. issues, but it depends whether your baseline is absolute perfection or your baseline is how many humans die every day. Mm -hmm. And to me, if the technology is better than human driving and people die less frequently, we should deploy it as fast as possible. Where some people would say, well, you have to prove it's perfect. And the same, we had this debate, if you like to read, you know, old school history around electricity. Mm -hmm. Um, Electricity at first was a fairly dangerous technology. Yeah, homes got blown up. Yeah, all the time. And, you know, you can read a great book, uh, Historical Fiction by Graham Moore Mm -hmm. about, you know, Tesla versus Edison and Westinghouse and was an awesome part of American history. Mm-hmm. But if the framework had been, is electricity perfectly safe, we never would have had electric lights. Right. And so I think with technology— And gas was more dangerous. Ga- well, gas gas was absolutely more mm-hmm. dangerous once, tech- once the technology electricity got to a certain predictability. Mm-hmm. That's why nobody uses gas anymore for most things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely— really re- reject the idea that new technology should be perfect, mm-hmm. that that's, that's not the milestone. The milestone is it better than what we do every day. And if that's the case, then autonomous driving is going to happen sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. I don't think humans will stop driving for a while. But there's probably a point even in my lifetime where humans are not allowed to drive. Well, it's interesting. I, whenever I gave a speech about two years ago, and I said, someday owning a car is like owning a horse. Like you'll have it at your ranch and you'll drive it around or you it'll be a, it'll be an entertainment versus a 
a real transportation. I, I agree with that. I and mean, they it, shouldn't be in cities. There shouldn't be cars in cities. Well, well I, I, autonomous. Yeah, I actually funded um, one company that's still a quasi-stealth mode, so I won't talk too much about it, but that's reinventing the idea of a city and predicated on the idea that transportation yeah. is completely archaic right. and is really built on the 18th century or, ni- well, 19th mm-hmm. century. And um, we'll have something live, you know, later, maybe this year even. Yeah, it was interesting. Years ago, if you remember when Larry and Sergey from Google were going to put uh, ski lifts in San Francisco, do you remember that crazy scheme? Yeah. This, at the time, I was like, that's actually the way we're going to get around. We're not going to have cars. We're going to get around by these vehicles, whatever they are, vertical lift and takeoff. Ski lifts were fine. It was like, it was. I was always like, this is actually how it has to be in cities. Cars have to leave cities. Yeah, cars, cars. I mean, non autonomous cars have to leave. Non autonomous cars take up, like, just look at the parking implications. I've read studies that, you know, between 20 and 40% of real estate in a city can be allocated to parking. Mm -hmm. That's like crazy. Think about how much housing you could build or what else you could do with that real estate if you didn't need as many parking spots. Right. Absolutely. All right. So let's, so anything else, any other areas? So autonomous healthcare. Well, everybody talks about AI, right? right? So that's the other topic, you know, the hyped up topic. The way I think about AI is maybe a little bit different, which is I actually believe in AI and I believe there's a lot of innovation that's already happened and and still accelerating. However, to me, the end goal is that the the customer, the normal person on the street, doesn't even know that the technology is powered by AI. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I was a lawyer. There's no reason you couldn't replace a lot of what lawyers do with right. AI. Absolutely. Um, so. I actually want to fund some people doing that. I'm, I'm looking into various ways to do that. But I don't know the end purchaser of the legal services needs to know whether it was a human or a machine creating the brief. Right. But I want a brief that's not drafted by a human or that the ratio of drafting of a human to computer is, you know, 99 to 1 or something or 1 to 99. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of technology components under the hood that are powered by AI, but the product looks like a normal product, just costs Mm -hmm. a lot less and works Mm -hmm. a lot faster. So for example, out of Y Combinator, we funded a company that does patent filings by AI. Right. So they use AI to draft their patent filings with with, with some human labor, But the customer is delighted because instead of going to a patent firm and paying an exorbitant cost to write a patent filing and waiting three to four weeks, we can do it in one to two weeks for a third of the cost. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see a lot of stuff like that. Absolutely. And Absolutely. then more people Lawyers, will be able to consume it. diagnostics. There's all kinds of things that are higher level jobs like that are seen. But they're still, to me, they're like manufacturing. They're like working in a factory, some of these things. Are. Well, they are more than people realize. I think this is the thesis at Coastal that we've had for a while. At Coastal Ventures, we've been funding replacing human judgment mm-hmm. with AI not the manual labor. But those jobs that allegedly entail human judgment are a lot more like manufacturing than people realize. I mean, I was a lawyer. A lot of what lawyers do is a hell of a lot right. like working in a factory. Right. It's one of the reasons why I escaped. Right, right, exactly. All right, so, one of the, so we're talking about innovations going, but how do you assess this year? Let's talk about some of the ethical issues like with Facebook and, and with uh, Khashoggi and this investment by the Saudis. Do you think that this group of people is equipped, you know, with all these exciting things that are ahead to deal with it? How do you assess sort of the ethical health of Silicon Valley right now? Well, I would also frame this very differently, which is okay. compared to who and compared to what. All right. Okay, these I mean, are people can, who did go on and on about how good they are. This, this is, yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, people, people come to Silicon Valley. Wall Street people never said we're not evil. No, but people do come to Silicon Valley with a mission, and right. the mission is to improve some element of society that's probably broken or inaccessible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's powered the best companies in the history of Silicon Valley forever. So I uh, 
I believe that that's true, and that's the missionary zeal. Mm-hmm. As Silicon Valley has become more important, it's a bit like the old Steve Jobs quote of the pirates in the Navy. Everybody roots for the pirates until they're successful. Then you have to act like the Navy. Mm-hmm. And Silicon Valley has historically been the pirates upending and improving archaic it's industries. It's an old meme, let's be honest. Yeah, no, but it, it's actually quite relevant, line. which right, is, okay. I mean, I actually think I coined this mm-hmm. um, in terms of the change. I, I did an interview with Travis mm-hmm. about five years ago. Kalanick. Yeah, on mm-hmm. stage. And as he was talking, it occurred to me that basically what was happening was the technology companies were becoming so important that they were really more like the Navy. And when you're mm-hmm. the Navy, you have to act like the Navy. You can't act like the pirate anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, that transformation probably lagged a bit, especially at some companies like Uber, but maybe even across Silicon Valley. But to me, humans are humans. They've been humans. Like if you read Shakespeare, like there's nothing in, there's nothing that's happening in Silicon Valley that you can't find in Shakespeare. Because no. um, human humans have always been humans. Or if you read Sapiens, you get a feel for this mm-hmm. too, going back, you know, <laughs> not just centuries, but like eons. And um, so to me, like when you talk about an ethical debate, the question is, are we doing things better than we used to, mm-hmm. better than other humans, mm-hmm. better than 100 years ago, better than 1,000 years ago? And the answer to most of those questions is yes, yes, and yes. Mm-hmm. And it, so yes, people can improve. Yes, Silicon Valley can improve. But if you compare it on any benchmark and yardstick to humans in history, it's usually pretty damn good. Okay. So we can talk about this very specifically on any of these topics, but I don't start with the premise that Silicon Valley should be so bulletproof and so perfect or it's fair to criticize Silicon Valley. Right. Okay. So what do you think of the criticism? It's mostly focused on Facebook, of course. Yeah, which I think in some sense is also a little unfair. Mm-hmm. I think some things Facebook has done are unique to Facebook, and that's a legitimate topic to discuss and criticize. I think a lot of things Facebook has done are actually things other technology companies or other non-technology mm-hmm. companies have done, mm-hmm. and the media has been fairly inconsistent in singling out Facebook. Sure. So, for example, let's take a, a classic example. People talk about using certain data to target ads on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And they can complain about you can target on this way or that way. And they find nefarious examples of such, allegedly. I would posit that anything you've seen on Facebook in terms of targeted ads Mm -hmm. can be done on steroids, i.e. more targeted with more data that's more personally sensitive using direct mail. Mm -hmm. And direct mail has been around at least since the 1940s. But I don't read the New York Times writing exposés on direct mail. They have written stories on direct mail. They probably have, but then they drop it. So why do you think think this, is it the size of it? The massive, the the massive impact is the numbers, I think, is probably why. I think it's jealousy, truthfully. I actually think a lot of journalists are jealous of tech. They have colleagues that are uh, they have comparable people that went to school with them at Harvard, Yale, et cetera, that went into tech companies that are oh, same age and I make a lot more money. No. Um, secondly, the biggest issue is gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the removal of the gatekeeper role. Mm-hmm. So when I was growing up, which isn't that long ago, mm-hmm. the media had massive gatekeeping obligations mm-hmm. and impact. So if CBS News didn't want to cover your story, right? There really wasn't a way to communicate directly with the American people. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, even when I started in Silicon Valley in 2000, basically if the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Wired, or maybe one or two other publications wouldn't write about you, there was nothing you could do. That's changed with the proliferation of Twitter, Reddit, Facebook. There's so many channels to communicate your ideas 
that the role of the media has been eviscerated. Mm -hmm. The media cannot stop ideas from spreading anymore. And I think that frustrates a lot of people in the media and they kind of want to put the genie back in the bottle. Hmm. And you see that in a lot of the coverage. It's either explicit or implicit. But, you know, Naval was the first one to, Naval Ravikant was the first one to really point this out. In a blog post he wrote in 2012, I believe, he basically predicted this whole trend Mm -hmm. that the media would push back on the lack of gatekeeping that they've historically performed. Well, lack of gatekeeping. What about you've got to, Keith? You can't utterly dismiss some of their sloppy management at Facebook. It, over and over again, there's instances of not being gatekeepers being problematic. Yeah, that's fair. But compared to what? I mean, again, the printing. There, I, as Tyler Cowen has written. Mm-hmm. I don't know any criticism of Facebook that wouldn't have been written about the printing press. When the fir- printing press Which first there was, was, there was. Yes, yes. but the, the, the printing press was obviously one of the most important things in the history of the human race. Mm-hmm. And it un- it created revolutions. Like before, the religious right. you know, sects could control the right. dissemination of yes, ideas. Well, and after the printing press, right. they couldn't. And so there were lots of new religions and they created revolutions. And that's exactly what social platforms are doing. They're creating revolutions. But the printing press was clearly— Yeah, the printing press was available to lots of people. The face, Facebook is run by one person, if you really— Yeah, but they're, if, if not Facebook, there's Twitter, and if not Twitter, but there's Facebook Reddit. Facebook, by far, is the biggest and I don't believe impact. that, actually. Right. I think Twitter okay. has more impact um, on policy. Yeah, that's—I wrote a column about that. This yeah, I don't—I actually don't think Facebook has nearly as much impact as people think. Uh, like, for example, Google's pretty influential. Like, it's hard to live without Google. Mm-hmm. I don't find it hard to live without Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, it doesn't perform a utilitarian function for me. Yeah. Twitter does perform a utilitarian function. It's for like news, my newspaper. newspaper it's right. like my New York Times. When I was right. growing up on Sundays, mm-hmm. I would sit at my table, have a bagel, and consume the New York Times. Right. Now I wake up in the morning. I don't have a bagel anymore, but I have eggs instead. But I also read Twitter all morning, mm-hmm. and then I click through on the links that are interesting. Right, so it's including just, New York Times articles. Yeah, I, no, absolutely. It's a reasonable fraction of stuff mm-hmm. I may click through. But fundamentally, my go-to constellation is Twitter. What would you criticize Facebook for? So I think their communication strategy has been intellectually bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they've been incredibly defensive. They should be framing some of these debates instead of waiting for the expose and then reacting to it. I think they've struggled with whether they really want to embrace a censorship role or Mm -hmm. not, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a complicated topic. I think, for example, if you take their mission seriously, which is to serve all humans and certainly all Americans, they really shouldn't be censoring content unless it's libelous, obscene. That's about it. Pornographic. Violent. violent. Yeah, maybe directly inciting violence, which is, you know, the standard from the Supreme Court in 1969. Mm But Anything else, I I don't think you can and serve the needs. what about their performance around political advertising in the Russian? Having it, well, not, let's talk about that. So there are some laws that apply to purchase the purchase of ads by foreign entities mm-hmm. that have been the law of the United States for a while. Mm-hmm. And Facebook, like any other media, should observe those laws. Right. So if you can't buy a TV ad, if you're a Russian entity, you shouldn't be allowed to buy an ad on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It should be consistent across mm-hmm. channels. But if you can buy a TV ad, then you should absolutely be able to buy the same ad on Facebook. So I think they were negligent in some of that. Now, that said, a lot of the complaints, because the total expense— Was uh, around the content. I I understand that the the, advertising wasn't quite— Yeah, the advertising was a small component. It's the content. But the content, like, if those people are allowed to publish a book in the United States, why can't they share the content on Facebook? 
It's amplified. It's problematic. You know, yeah, I, I know, but, but the, I'm just it, saying it, it, it puts right. them in the zero. But if I publish seat. a book, I can buy ads for the book. I can run an ad in the New York Times for my book. Yes. I can go on radio and talk about my book. I can do a book tour. But look at the difference. Say, I just it was it was interested. This sort of pushback of Alice Walker on at the New York Times, just even mentioning a book, and the New York Times responding versus Facebook and being used by the you know without explaining that these are Russians that are trying to influence the election. You know what I mean? There wasn't until lately that wasn't the case. Well, I, I, that's, I think influencing elections is something. Every government in history has tried to do. Right. And the American government on down. Do yes, so of I, I think the biggest issue was the American government was not wary enough about the agenda of certain other countries, mm-hmm. Russia particularly, but also you could argue China. And then tech companies in some ways were following the lead of their government. I mean, mm-hmm. Obama famously ridiculed Mitt Romney for calling out Russia as a potential threat. Right. And so why Facebook should be more prescient than Obama about the threat of Russia, to me, makes no sense. I think Obama well, was wrong. Had, yes, absolutely. But I, they had a lot. They have a lot of information of what's moving on their system. Well, or presumably maybe Obama don't. had a lot of information, I hope, Probably from Facebook. the CIA and other yes, people. Yes, yes, And definitely, I think people within Facebook said we warned them. Certain people said we did warn them. Others say we didn't warn them enough. You know. But let me come back to the metaphor okay. of a book, though. Okay. I think if you can publish a book in the United States then you should be absolutely free to share that content on Facebook or Twitter. Even if you can hide who you are. Well, what, well, what are the rules around publishing a book? This country was founded on anonymous or pseudonymous pamphlets. Mm-hmm. So if With you cool could publish— names. Like well, some were, some were true names, some were No, not. I know that. I know that. I but, I mean, it's classic American history. This is the reason why we teach American history is not just for you know, obscure facts. It's so that the debates and principles can apply to, now, yeah. to today's world. I don't see why there should be a rule that says you have to publish under your own name. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you buy ads, there's a legitimate paradigm that's been established that only only some people can buy ads. So does it worry you as an American citizen that this is allowed to happen? Not really, but here's why. So the one study I've been waiting for someone to show me is a survey of some type, and you can debate the methodology, put aside the exact methodology for a second, that the voters in 2016 in some net way, were less informed. They will never be able to figure it out. Yeah, but they were. I actually would argue that in 2016, the average voter knew more about society and life than mm-hmm. in any time in American history. If you think about like how much the average American yep. knew in 1906. So they have more information. Yeah, so show me a study of some in some way that there was more confusion, more misrepresentation, more misunderstandings than any time in any other election. But I actually think that's impossible to prove. Yeah. I mean, because it's actually factually impossible. wrong. Well, like the average American okay. was pretty manipulated by a lot of media mm-hmm. and actually wasn't that well educated. I mean, in, you know, until like 1960s, 70s, 80s, even the idea of going to college mm-hmm. was a was the sort of the preserve of the elite. Now, you know, so, now everybody debates whether everybody should go to college for free. All right, so we have to finish this section, but what would you imagine will happen to Facebook now? Well, I think Facebook has generally played some of their political cards pretty well. They're pretty deft about using their connections through Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter being Thiel, very who's ca- on the board. Peter on the board. They're pretty careful. They listen to Joel Kaplan, who's getting a lot of coverage. I think Google's a lot less careful. Mm-hmm about their perception of Washington. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting problem that these tech companies, the major tech companies, particularly Facebook and Google, to some extent Amazon may have, which is the left wants to regulate tech companies because the left doesn't like accumulated power, traditional like left view. Mm -hmm. And the right who should be the natural defender Mm -hmm. of not using the government and regulation to interfere in private businesses actually 
feels that these companies are monocultures of liberalism and doesn't really want to lift a finger to defend mm-hmm. these companies that are sort of left-wing institutions. So the tech companies kind of have this fundamental problem, which is their natural ideological defenders don't really like the culture and the employee base views and Mm -hmm. the contributions, the political contributions of these companies. Mm -hmm. So they're not very excited about defending from the left the regulation. I mean, I talk to my friends all the time on the right, and they understand the views about why they should be opposed to what the left wants to do. They have a scarce time in their life, and they have scarce political capital. They're like, why would I defend Google? Why would I use my capital for that? Do you feel like regulation is coming? Antitrust, correct? Well, antitrust is complicated Mm -hmm. because— Changing. Well, it may change, but the fundamental principle of consumer harm is pretty deeply embedded in antitrust philosophy in the United States. And it's very difficult, if to not impossible, to show harm. consumer People harm. People love these, Amazon, right? Yeah, these are well, they're free products they're great. for the most part. So, you know, it's hard to show raising prices and mm-hmm. monopoly profits. Secondly, Amazon tends to have a fairly low price, mm-hmm. um, and but not below marginal cost. Mm-hmm. So it's been traditionally very difficult in the United States to show, you know, anti-consumer behavior when that's true. Same thing with Google and Facebook. So, exactly. so what so, do you imagine the regulation being? I think the regulations certainly out of Europe will continue to increase because privacy they have a different history privacy. of antitrust regulation where it's more of a policy mm-hmm. and politics decision. Uh, secondly, I, I think that until 2020, the administration is going to be in the hands of mostly people who buy the Borkian view of antitrust policy, which is unique consumer harm. If Trump were to lose and the Democrats to win, then I think you could see a head of the FTC or head of the antitrust division that really tries to rewrite American antitrust yeah. doctrine. Yeah, and that's be- been talked about. Before that, yeah, you see occasional academic journals. I mean, this is what I used to do for a living as a lawyer, as an antitrust litigator. And the problem you have, and I've thought about this a lot and debated it with some of my colleagues on the right, is coming up with a neutral principle, a principle that would apply to tech companies, but that wouldn't completely undermine all of antitrust history. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to it find. Is. I can think of a few, but it's not easy at all. And at least if I were in government, I'd want a neutral principle that I could defend as would work for every industry. This is what Delrahim was talking about when I interviewed him. Same yeah, thing. no, absolutely. You need, you need neutral principles. And if you don't have a neutral principle, I don't think you want to start a process where you're just scapegoating people. That's kind mm-hmm. of Nixonian, actually, right. it's, uh, you know, in some ways. And I think that's a very bad precedent. So what do you expect? What, if you probably I think you're going to see rather. a lot more hearings. So certainly right. the gavel, the fact that the Democrats have control of the gavels, you know, one, privacy. Of the, one of the subtle, subtle nuances of being the majority in the House is you can call hearings whenever you want. Right. Only the majority can schedule hearings. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to see, you know, Sundar on stage a lot more, mm-hmm. and maybe Mark on stage, and Cheryl on stage. And any use to those things or just well occasionally those things backfire so you know when you're on stage one misstatement right exactly can really create a firestorm right and I, most of these tech leaders have not been under pressure like that it's not mm-hmm. like doing a journalist interview right it's more like doing a tv interview mm-hmm. and a tv and you're difficult. Under oath. And tv you're under interviews oath. are really difficult as you you know when you interviewed you know mark on stage mm-hmm. for example um, years ago it was very difficult for him yeah he didn't um, do very well on the podcast though either i think podcasts are easier than tv interviews because it's your mm-hmm. you know it's nixon the famous right. kennedy nixon problem right. yeah. um you know arguably american history 
still like to be on TV anyway. Um, so in any event, I, I suspect you're going to see them on stage a lot. And that will cause someone to screw up where they say something inappropriate, you know, not ideally framed that leads to an investigation, which may uncover some evidence. I think, for example, if you were to subpoena Facebook and Google, you would find documents that are oh, not yeah. particularly exciting. I got their I emails mean, have got to be awful. They have to be awful. They have to be awful. Yeah, and then and they're being embarrassing. Even the small ones that have come out, I'm like, oh. Yeah, well, good. imagine you, you live through the Microsoft mm-hmm. litigation. Oh yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly where they're going to get them with the emails. And and because you know, they're once, so careless, and well, also impo- on their on their yeah. on their pay, they all have these internal message boards. It's are, impossible to police those perfectly. Like right. as someone who used to run companies, right. you can try to remind people. You know that one day someone may look at this yeah. out of context and please be careful what you write. But you need people to do their jobs too, which is to communicate directly, succinctly, powerfully, right. off the, oh, com- no. you know, on the Slack fly. and the message boards Slack, alone. message boards. This stuff's going to be very embarrassing. Yeah. So the question is, what's the legal doctrine and legal hook that allows someone to subpoena this evidence and get mm-hmm. their hands on this treasure trove? Mm-hmm. Once they get the treasure trove, all hell's going to break loose because yes. there's going to be very embarrassing. Slack. 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 Well, you have Slack, what people think of as instantaneous. The right. more instantaneous something is, the less people right. edit. text. Oh, yeah. God. There's, there's just so there's, much. There's, it's going to be really so embarrassing. Facebook one, Messenger. Really quickly to Messenger. Absolutely. Khashoggi. You were very, you and I share the same opinion about this in yes. terms of, so talk about that. Well, to me, it wasn't surprising. Saudi Arabia has been uh, a big investor via well, SoftBank and others. Saudi Arabia has discriminated against gays, women, Jews officially, explicitly for decades. Mm-hmm. It executes people who are gay. It executes people who are Jewish. Um, So the idea that they would murder someone isn't surprising to me. To me, it's like surprising that more people weren't paying attention Mm -hmm. to the evils of Saudi Arabia for the last 30 years. Now, there's a reason why is they've been you know, politically helpful with some other battles that the United States has had in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So it's like a marriage of convenience. But that doesn't mean that Silicon Valley should be participating in this. As I, we talked on your show, actually your podcast, two and a half years ago, or maybe three years ago, actually, that people boycott in Silicon Valley, North Carolina or Georgia, for somewhat mundane legal uh, changes, in, you know, whether it's the bathroom labeling or something equivalent. Mm-hmm. Yet, they take money from Saudi Arabia where it's illegal to be gay. It's like illegal, like a crime. Right. It's not just like you can't go to the bathroom that you choose. It's like we're going to shoot you. Or if you're Jewish, you could be discriminated against in any possible I am with matter you ways. On this. So, what, so I think people are incredibly what, what, hypocritical here. What will happen? Will they keep taking the money? Over time, probably not. In the short term, yes, because especially as the economy gets softer in Silicon Valley, the desperation for money among late-stage companies is going to be higher. But a lot of entrepreneurs are definitely having these debates, and some have been hesitant. I know some entrepreneurs who could have taken SoftBank money that have decided SoftBank, not half to. of its fund is from Saudi Arabia, it's more than just half. to be clear. It's, ex- it's more like 90% yeah. if you— it's half if you allow them to do accounting it's a gimmicks. Lot. It's ninety percent, eighty to ninety percent. It's the if big you don't. funder. It's yeah. the big funder. There is no. Is there, there, there is no vision money? fund without Saudi Arabia. Is there any clean money? I mean, where it comes from? Uh, they were stack ranking at a party that I was at recently. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, you do have this issue of late stage money, right? Like. Mm-hmm. A lot of money comes yeah. from Russia, right, which is no longer acceptable. Mm-hmm. You have money coming from Saudi Arabia, which at least to me should be unacceptable. And you have money from China, which has its own set of issues. And, right. that, and that actually, the, the money from China may not be coming for other reasons internal to China anyway. Mm-hmm. 
so finding, yeah, you can get money from T. Rowe Price or Lee Fixel, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, Fidelity. There Where do are, they get the money from? They get the money, tradi- you know, more more traditional sources. Right. Um, doesn't mean, you know, all Americans are good or all American money is clean. But fundamentally, if you're taking money from an investor that's trying to effectively launder the money, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of countries have been doing. Right. And that's been propping up some of these late stage financings. To me, I think that means you go public. Right. And if you go public, you take money from normal, everyday Americans. You have the disclosure obligations and the the serious scrutiny and accounting requirements that is associated with taking money from normal Americans. But that degree of disclosure and credibility and scrutiny and transparency is actually a good thing. I think it's a good thing for your company, actually, mm-hmm. to be subject to auditors mm-hmm. and subject to reporting. Where you're getting the money from. Well, not, not just where you're getting the money from, but how you're performing. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, so, I think people are trying to insulate themselves from, from accountability. Well, that's true. That's 100% true. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, the future of work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm going to ask him, so there's a whole bunch, I asked a question of what I should ask you on Twitter, and of course, uh, Antonio, he's such a pain in the ass, um, <laughs> Antonio Garcia Martinez, who is also a very argumentative person on uh, Twitter, and I enjoy him doing that. I think we want a video of the probable fistfight. We don't fistfight. The gays don't fistfight, Antonio. No, fistfight. That's so um, archaic. So here's one from Jason Del Rey, actually. What is the definition of contrarian in 2019? <laughs> what do you, because you're known as a contrarian. Well, I, I like to think from first principles, and I like to think for myself, which mm-hmm. means occasionally I align with you, and occasionally I don't. But I like to be a non-derivative thinker. It's not always possible. Everybody lives in concentric circles, your professional circles, your social circles, and that mm-hmm. obviously influences you. Right. But I try to have my own perspective. I like to read. For example, mm-hmm. in my free time, I read books, and that occasionally what? changes my thinking. Yeah, I right. read old school books. Uh-huh. That's what I was doing yesterday. Most of yesterday, being Jewish, I mm-hmm. uh, was not celebrating a holiday. I was reading. I read like three books yesterday. Mm-hmm. Which ones? So I read this really great book on cancer innovation called Breakthrough, mm-hmm. which is incredibly impressive in terms of its ability to tell the story of how using your own immune system to fight cancer is better than radiology or chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. But it had been suppressed by the medical community for a century. Wow. So this has been known since the 1890s that you can, at least in, in some kinds of cancer, use your own immune system to fight cancer. But a lot of medical people and experts didn't believe this, and mm-hmm. so they actively suppressed this knowledge, and people were dying as they were suppressing this knowledge. But it's now becoming more mainstream because there's now enough data to overcome all the suppression. But it, it reminds you that even, quote-unquote, science and medicine isn't immune from political fights. And these political fights cost many people their lives because we spent a century not innovating on how to use your immune system to cure, in quotes, cancer. So that was one. Second one is I was finishing Mike Ovitz's autobiography, which I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. It's a great tale um, in many ways. Why is that? Why do you like um, So the thing I liked is, first of all, it's very candid. It's intellectually honest. It's personally honest. Um, you know, I'm a kind of an amateur observer of Hollywood, and I found it fascinating the different the 
how fine the line is between success and failure. How many of these famous movies that, you know, won Academy Awards or that I grew mm-hmm. up watching and were kind of cultural icons were just barely made. Like mm-hmm. how much heroic effort went into packaging totally. them and making them happen and that the world could be completely different without a couple of very clever maneuvers. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you take these success and it works in technology just the same way. You right. take these successful That's companies really and assume that, you know, of course this was going to succeed. But right. behind the scenes, there was a hell oh, of a lot of work and inspiration yeah. and tenacity he was a that went breaker, into these things. Right? Yeah. He so, was a real nut. He's not well liked so, in Hollywood because of that. Um, <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask another. Uh, what's the third one? Uh, the third? So the third one is this new um, one-volume uh, biography of Churchill. Uh, so I've read you know, Churchill biographies before. This may be the best one volume. I mean, part? obviously, if you really want to read about Churchill, you have to Who read more that? than one volume because his history, his life is full of he so many, <laughs> so many dimensions. Yeah, but um, this is a very good one. Who is it by? Um, oh man, uh, spacing on the author's name. It just—it was just published. Okay. Um, it, it's doing very well. It's surprise. It's selling quite well, which mm-hmm. is um, pretty impressive in, an own, in its own right because it's like still one volume means nine hundred pages, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in Churchill. Right. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoy it so far. I'm only about a hundred. Contrarians. Yes. I mean, Churchill changed parties three times, Mm -hmm. changed his views on several topics, but on the biggest issues, the biggest moments of his life, he was right. He was right. Okay. So this is another question now. Um, This there's a lot around your politics because Keith is conservative. Would you call yourself conservative? You and yeah, I consider myself conservative actually more than I would consider myself Republican. Okay. All right. What does that mean? To me, conservative means that there's right and wrong, Mm -hmm. and that there's a a meritocratic. benchmark that one can use to look at ideas. Okay. Now, this is a question. Do you feel loyalty to the USA when so many of the libertarians are so anti-government and seemingly pro-Russia? Okay. And then there's another one about your friendship with Peter Thiel, uh, who is obviously controversial because his links with uh, Donald Trump. Does he think that implicated uh, Thiel is implicated in Cambridge Analytica scandal and so on? And will it be interviewed by Mueller, uh, go to federal prison, be deported to Germany? <laughs> yeah, that's he's a, Twitter's he's, up to its usual nonsense. He, um, he does have a... Yes, I mean, Cambridge Analytica is right. pretty funny. I mean, yeah. like, I, 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 again, but, I've used... Away direct- from Cambridge Analytica, what, what about, you know, your status as a conservative? How do you... Well, I... Uh, I think it's hard to be conservative sometimes, not just in Silicon Valley, because mm-hmm. it frustrates me often when conservatives don't do the hard work of coming up with innovative solutions to real mm-hmm. problems. Being a conservative doesn't mean not having a solution. It means having a different solution, often one that's not based upon government intervention. Mm-hmm. But so, for example, in healthcare, the U.S. government solution to healthcare is very counterproductive in many ways, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't excuse conservatives from having better answers. But it sometimes frustrates me that when we were out of power, Mm -hmm. that we weren't developing better answers to a lot of these problems. And so I get annoyed um, once in a while, every like 10 years, you see an up and coming conservative who has some fresh perspective and ideas and it's invigorating. Sometimes they do well in, in the political world. Sometimes they get elected. Sometimes they get elected and they disappoint you because they're like any other politician. But so it's, it's like a, a sine wave of emotions being a conservative because you get optimistic about somebody or something. Mm-hmm. Who and are then you optimistic cr- about? Are you optimistic about Trump? Right? Oh, now? hell no. I think I called him a sociopath. Yeah, yeah. I, I so you're not a Republican you, as no. the current Republican Party. And, and I also believe, you know, I think I was the first person perhaps who funded Never Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think if you do some research, you'll see that. Um, so, um, no, not the biggest fan of the Have president. Have you debate with Peter about that? Yeah, a little bit. So Peter's view on Trump that he persuaded— He was interested in lack of regulation, like the FDA getting— Well, I think some of that area is very much appealed, and Trump's been actually quite good at some of that. I think Peter's view on Trump is pretty simple to describe, which is if you believe that the U.S. was on the wrong 
trajectory and wrong course, and it was going to get worse, not better, the idea of rolling the dice with some random person so, might be better than staying Insert a disease. Yeah, it was a little bit like roll the dice, anything could be better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to some extent, that's what Trump's actually done. On some policies, for example, I believe his policy on China is actually probably more right than wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think actually there's about a 50-50 perspective on this in Silicon Valley at the moment. There's a lot of people who are very liberal who actually applaud him for challenging China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think on some policies, he's been willing to take a fresh perspective. You know what? He's, sometimes he's directionally and absolutely topically wrong. Well, the, Directionally well, correct about China, but every single thing he says about it is wrong. Is the wrong way. It's like no, that's, in, in, that's in, true. Well, part of it is I think he has instincts but doesn't do the work. Of, no, I think much many of them are racist or ill-informed or something. But, but usually but his times, opinions are have not based in any kind of research whatsoever. It's just off the top of his fucking head. Yeah, but these instincts sometimes are right. Like the, the foreign policy establishment, for example, can be wrong about a lot of things Certainly. in the U.S. And his willingness to challenge them and not just take for granted what they say. So, for example, you know, one of the things I applaud him a lot on is moving our embassy in Israel. Very mm-hmm. controversial. Everybody who's running for president for like 40 years declared that they would do it. Mm-hmm. And every single, whether they were Republican or Democrat, wimped out. So it was in the Democratic platform to move the embassy to mm-hmm. Jerusalem. It was in the Republican platform since 1980 to move the. But every time someone became president, they found every excuse under the book mm-hmm. to not move it. He actually promised it and he, he actually did it. And it turns out he was right that like there weren't riots. It actually was supporting our ally who is democratic. People in Israel, by the way, I was in Tel Aviv in August, really love Trump. Mm-hmm. Even the liberal part of the, the uh, sort of Israeli population loves Trump because they finally found an American president who actually did what he did said. The one thing that they he did one, one thing, thing, one, he, that one thing he promised. Right, but you told him a sociopath. What do you, what do you imagine is going to happen right now? Um, that is a great question. I think he's run into a box where the people who are most talented really don't want to work for him. Mm-hmm. And that's a fatal problem in a company. Yes. I, you know, we deal with this on a board sure. all the time. We have a CEO who has some talent but is destructive. And all of a sudden, that company can't recruit talented mm-hmm. engineers, designers, et cetera. And the company itself is in jeopardy because of that. And I think he has now burned through so much of his administration. Or These are people he hired, by mm-hmm. the way. Right. You know, one of the points that's, hard to be forgiving to him and, you know, people should really be attacking him on is all these people he fired Mm -hmm. for alleged flaws, he hired them all. Mm -hmm. So someone made the mistake on the way in, you know, if he inherited, if you inherit someone as a CEO, it's perfectly fine to fire them when you realize they're not capable Mm -hmm. of doing the job. But if you're the one who hired them too, you can't be hiring and and firing people all day long that shows you don't know how to hire. Right, exactly. So where do you imagine this going? I think he holds on, and barring a health issue, which he's 72 years old and under stress all the time and doesn't have all the healthiest habits, I suspect that he runs for re-election. And if he runs for re-election, I think the odds of him winning are actually more than 50%. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is obviously his favorable-unfavorable rating is poor. Um, It's one of the worst in American history. But most of the Democrats who are going to challenge him are very flawed themselves. Yeah. And people, it's an organizational. So sure. abstractly, you can say, oh, I can beat Trump. But when there's a very tangible, concrete person who has their own character flaws, right. that's going to be very interesting. It'll be an interesting organizational challenge for the Democrats. They yeah. managed to pull it off in the midterms. They managed to pull it off in places like but Alabama. But they didn't have to nominate one person Right, I know, but midterms. in Alabama, for example, there was lots of different places where they've won. In- Some of that was self-inflicted Republican 
stupidity. Yes, but self-inflicted is the Alabama description of Trump, Trump, isn't it? Oh, no. He so. commits – the way I describe Trump is mm-hmm. he commits the most unforced errors of anybody I've ever seen. Yeah. Like when he, he finds a way to put defeat in the, in the, in the place of victory. Like right. he attacks his own – you know, supporters, if he, Democrats and some liberals are very lucky because you could get someone with Trump's views, mm-hmm. but without his personal character flaws. Right. And that person, if they, if he or she were elected president, would be phenomenally successful. Trump gets in his own way and probably is accomplishing time, one think, third of what he probably could have accomplished. At the same time, it was interesting when I was talking, someone was talking about today about my piece on the Twitter, how he uses Twitter as, as a government style, they were like, well, the next president will use it. I'm like, can anyone use it as well? That's a question of someone can actually employ it. He employs it really well. Not well. I don't think it's well, but it's kind of sociopathic, but it works for him. It's inconsistent. So I think he uses it brilliantly sometimes yeah. and then it backfires on him sometimes. But in general, I'm saying that I don't know if there's another candidate who can use it as like someone, it can't be just all of a sudden everyone's going to use it well because everyone can't. No, I, I agree with that. Like, yeah. So people, you know, we have these waves and we talk, I alluded to to the Nixon, the famous Nixon-Kennedy debate mm-hmm. where, where many historians think, you know, sort of Nixon lost the election, which was the first presidential debate televised. Every new technology platform will empower a different type of person. Franklin Roosevelt famously used the radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trump is the first Twitter president. There will be a new platform at some point, a different VR. way of sharing information and debating the things. And, and that pre- the person who runs for president and uses that platform natively will probably do very what is it well. Be? VR? AR? I, I don't believe in VR per Personally, um, I don't think that's a thing other than maybe gaming. Mm-hmm. AR possibly, but there'll be some new channel and some political candidate will pioneer how to use it. Mm-hmm. There's a great book. I mean, if, I'm sure you've read Neil Postman's book, mm-hmm. Amusing Ourselves to Death from 1984. I think it perfectly predicted the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. But the, ba- the main point of the book and the main arc of the book is that every me- medium of communication creates a different type of content that's, that succeeds in that medium yes, of absolutely, communication. Absolutely. And Twitter is ideally suited for someone like Trump. So, There'll be a new platform at some point, and it'll be a different candidate 100%. that takes advantage Who's of it. Who's the best Democratic candidate to run against him? Off the top of your head. Actually, and, for, and for Silicon well, Valley, who's the best? Well, the, the one who would give him the most trouble is Michelle Obama. <laughs> I don't think she wants to run, no. but she would cause him real problems. Um, most of the other candidates won't. See, there's a couple of things that are implicit in Trump that don't get enough attention. One is he received a reasonable fraction of the African-American votes for a Republican. And the Democrats cannot win the presidency right. if he gets double-digit African-American votes. Mm-hmm. So... And that, that the basic swing between Obama and Hillary summed up a lot. There's a lot of complexity. You can talk about anything you want. But fundamentally, it was that he got more African-American voters than she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama got more than she did. And so someone who naturally appeals to the African-American community will do very well and cause him problems. Secondly, someone who doesn't need the media attention, but will get it. Like, meaning like someone who's above a certain rate, uh, status. Like um, Michelle and Oprah. Yeah. So I think Oprah, she, those kind of, Oprah could, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm more nervous. I mean, Howard Schultz and people like that are probably going to run, mm-hmm. but I, I think those people who've never been tested tend to backfire a lot. Right, me too. Uh, it's very difficult when you're not used to this level of scrutiny and stress. Like Meg Whitman, for example, was a horrific mm-hmm. political candidate. All of her races, all mm-hmm. of the things she's done yeah, in politics have backfired. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just a different skill. And mm-hmm. Trump, you could tell, had some skill in marketing from the day he announced his candidacy when he came down the escalator. I remember sitting at home. It was a Sunday morning, and I was watching it with uh, this guy I was dating at the time. And uh, he he looked at me and he said, you know, this guy's going to do well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like Trump. I grew up in New York City mm-hmm. and Trump, you know, in mm-hmm. the 80s. 
And he said, you have to watch this speech. Yeah. And so I watched it and I was like, you're right. He's definitely got a way of appealing to people and framing things mm-hmm. that make people nod their head. And if you have that, you yeah. can go far in politics, but that's a skill that most CEOs don't have. No, nope, you're 100% right. I, you know, I said the same thing when I was watching him. And I was, I'm, I believe I'm the only person who watched the entire seasons of The Apprentice, of, of people we oh, know. Oh, God, I feel bad I watched, for you. <laughs> oh, no, I loved it. I'm just saying, if, you know, the, let's just well, say I used the to listen to him on the New York. The gays he, knew. He used to be on the New York, you know, talk shows when I was growing up. And, yeah. you know, one of the things i do in high school and junior high school is we listen to talk shows on the radio. It was kind of a common way to entertain ourselves, sports radio and other talk show. And he'd call in all the time. Yeah. So he was a very significant New York, you know, presence. celebrity. 100%. Yeah, presence, absolutely. All right, we have to finish up. Um, we didn't get to talk about Open Door, but very briefly, where is it headed? Open Door, which is your real estate company. Yeah, Open, Open Door is doing phenomenally house. well. We've so, got only two minutes, so give so, me. Boom. So Open Door allows you to sell your house 30 seconds online. So you put in your address, we give you an offer of what the house is worth, and you get instant liquidity for your house. Mm-hmm. So instead of spending 84 days selling your house, having strangers come through your house every day, mm-hmm. waiting to see if you get a bid, we make everything easy, simple, and immediate. And it's done phenomenally well. We're in 18 cities. And then we you launched, have to sell the houses yourself, right? We sell. We have to resell the houses, mm-hmm. um, which is very complicated. We have 1,000 employees now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're in 18 cities, and we'll be in 30 cities by the end of the year. There's all these really interesting real estate compass. There's a whole bunch of new versions. There's a lot of, of innovation in, in real estate, estate. Uh, yeah. construction. Mm-hmm. Um, we've uh, we've actually funded ten we different. about this. We funded ten different companies at Coastla in the last two years that are real estate innovation. Yeah, it's a huge fraction of the American economy. How we build houses is antiquated. It's totally antiquated. Like walls. Think about building <laughs> walls, a wall. Exactly. Like right now, they're actually each one's custom made. There's no there's no reason it can't be productized. Absolutely. We funded a company called Vert that's going to do that. We they're fund, all pretty much the same. Size. They're all very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, we funded a company that's doing 3D construction of homes mm-hmm. called Mighty, Mighty Building out of mm-hmm. Y Combinator. You're going to see a lot of innovation on the construction side yeah. over the next decade. How's your crazy construction fight doing in San Francisco? It's actually doing well. Um, it took, Keith has a great, we won't get it. It took three it. years, but uh, we're, we're building the house finally. All right. I'm fine. I'm looking forward to coming if you ever invite me there. Oh, we'll definitely have All a right. party. He's, he's ACDC. Just, who didn't you piss off in that neighborhood? <laughs> Everybody. Uh, no, just one annoyed neighbor. But All San Francisco right. works that way. Yeah. One person can Oh, put I love a lot those of, stories, Keith. They yes. make me laugh and laugh. Anyway, Keith, it was great talking to you. See, no fist fight, Antonio. We can talk about interesting topics and disagree, and it's easy to do. Anyway, thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to have you back again. Thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Rico Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Keith, where can people find you online? At Raboy, R A B O I S. Very engaged. He's like me. He and I are very engaged on Twitter. Uh, now that you've done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.